0: In your bulletin, and you'll see it's a responsive reading of Psalm one hundred forty five verses one through six. So let's stand if you're able and call one another to worship as we read it responsively. I will extol you my king, o, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Now, continuing worship, let's take our hymns of grace, turn to number 17. O Father, you are sovereign. Number 17 in the hymns of grace. we pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice that we can sing together such a tremendous declaration that we trust and worship you. And we recognize that you are sovereign and it is only by your great loving kindness and mercy that we are able to come before you having been cleansed of all our sin by the blood of our Lord Jesus through faith in him alone. So now, our Father, as we seek to worship You truly as we ought this hour, we pray You would preserve us from error and being presumptuous before You. Grant that nothing be said or done or even thought that would dishonor You. Cause our prayers and singing and giving and preaching to be faithful to You in Your Word. Be near to us now, we pray, and may You, the God of our salvation, be exalted in this place. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And now, if you take your Trinity hymnal and turn to number 439. Number 439, Jesus, Thy blood and righteousness. Our consecutive reading today is Mark chapter 5. Mark 5, and as you're turning there in your Bibles, before we read chapter 5, I want to refresh our memory with two verses from chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel. The first one is verse 22 of chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, you can, but first one is verse 22 of chapter 1. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And then verse 27 of chapter 1. They were all amazed, so that they debated, debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Well, now here in chapter 5, we're going to see again, that Jesus confirms the authority of his teaching and who he is with miracles. He even does a miracle while he's on the way to do another miracle. And there are some who have faith in him and others who want him to go away. So, Mark chapter 5, hear now the word of the living and true God. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones, Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described it to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, after hearing about Jesus She came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any more?" But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, come, which is translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. Was where. Turn to the Lord in prayer again. I ask Brother Dan to uh, lead us in the pastoral prayer today. Brother Dan. now before Pastor Vondolowski comes to open the word let's turn to number 365 in your hymns of grace number 365 in hymns of grace ancient words please stand
1: You again. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Romans chapter 11. This is sitting here and on. I assume I'm supposed to put it on, so we'll do that. In Romans chapter 11, I want to look at verse 36 this morning. And looking at One of the, if not the, great philosophical questions in life of why do we exist? Why are we here? What are we doing? What is this all about? The Scriptures, of course, have a definitive answer to that question, have a unique and authoritative answer to that question, which is well summarized in the text of Romans 11 and verse 36. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters lay out the Gospel and the doctrine of the Gospel in elaborate detail. And as Paul's writings often do, he lays out that doctrine and then builds that to a crescendo in a doxology before He transitions and turns to our duty. And so as you know and are familiar with Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Gives the duty, and he elaborates on that in the rest of the book from chapters 12-16. through But we're going to look at this doxological statement that he leads to from the doctrine that he unfolds. Notice in verse 33 where the doxology starts. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? Who's ever taught God anything? God has never learned anything. He has always known everything. Or who hath first given to Him, and it shall be recompensed unto Him again. And here's our text in verse 36. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him, are all things. Everything comes from him, comes through him, and is to him. Everything. To whom be glory forever. Amen. So, in answering the great philosophical question of why we exist, it is very simply for the glory of God. It is not about us, it is about him. Everything is from Him and through Him and to Him. The Westminster answers this question, the first question of the catechism, what is the chief end of man? You probably certainly know the answer to that, I would hope. But man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Turn over a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, where the Bible says, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. That is the Christian perspective and philosophy of why we exist. It is the biblical answer to the question. You may ask, well, what is, what is the world's perspective and answer to that question? How would they respond for the reason for our existence? Well, there are a lot of nuances to that, but you can really, in many ways in our day and time, sum it up by what is called humanism. Humanism, let me give you a definition, is an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. So that in, in, the, in the air that we breathe in our society and in our world that is influenced by humanism, human interest is of primary importance. It is about us. The biblical and the Christian perspective is that it is not about us. It is about Him. The definition goes on to say, humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings. Emphasize common human needs and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. In contrast, what is a biblical worldview, what is a Christian worldview, is that we stress the, the value and goodness of God. We stress that everything is about Him, and we don't look to ourselves for the solution to our problems, but we look to Him. That He is the answer for all things. You probably know as well, the proof text in the catechism is 1 Corinthians 10.30. Turn over a couple more pages where the Bible says, not 10.30, I wrote 10.30, but it's 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink. Now that's not necessarily just talking about what you consume, but talking about whether you eat or meat sacrificed to idols, or whether you drink from something that maybe was sacrificed to an idol, if you understand the context, that your motive and the determining factor is not, if you're like me, what price you can get it for, if you got a good deal on it. It isn't whether it's something else that the determining factor of what you do and why and how you do it is that I do it all to the glory of God. That the determining factor of the things that we do or don't do in our life is can I glorify God in this? That is what we want to teach our children in understanding right and wrong. Where are the lines? Where are the boundaries? Well, whatever you do, if you can answer this question, can I do this to the glory of God? Do it. If you cannot do it to the glory of God, do not do it. That is the overarching silver bullet that if you just want to have a one word, one answer, one sentence to be determinative, there it is. That needs to be the overarching concept of everything that we do. This is not just a principle in Scripture, This is the principle in Scripture. This is what it is all about. This isn't just something that we put on a bumper sticker and make a statement that we should glorify God, that that's important. This is the core and center of everything we are and do as a Christian. This is obviously one of the five solas. Right? Sola de Gloria. For the glory of God alone. And the Bible claims an exclusive authority and an absolute truth for this answer. It isn't one among competing ideologies and ideas. It says alone. This alone. Whatever we do, everything we do is filtered through this principle of am I doing this to the glory of God? This is the exclusive and absolute answer and the reason why you exist. This is why you are made This is why you were formed. This is the answer. And yet, you're probably aware that most people don't understand the answer to that question. But as God's people, this should be ingrained in our thinking, in our understanding, and in everything that we do. This isn't just the reason for your individual existence. This is the reason for your marriage, for your children, for your business, for your job, for everything that you do. Every aspect of your life, all things are for the glory of God. This is why this church exists. This is why all things exist. Years ago, I had a mentor that he described what he called the buttonhole principle. Are you familiar with the buttonhole principle? No? The buttonhole principle works like this. If you have little boys, you are familiar with the buttonhole principle. Because when little boys button their shirt, I have a couple, they just start randomly. Button and hole and start trying to line it up and they just... Just try to run out of when they're out of buttons, they're done. And their shirt is a disheveled mess because they got the wrong buttons in the wrong hole. But the buttonhole principle works like this. If you get the first buttonhole and the first button together, all the rest of the buttonholes in your shirt line up. But you gotta get the first one right. Now of course I've been teaching this to my children and mentioning it to them using it as an illustration. And lo and behold, a few weeks ago, my one son, that one son, got the first buttonhole in the right hole and then still managed to get the rest of them wrong. And so my oldest son thought that was pretty funny to bring the son and said, see Dad, the buttonhole principle didn't work. But the concept is is that if we get this part right, if we get that buttonhole in the right spot, the other aspects of our life fall into line. But if you get the first button in the wrong hole, it doesn't matter what you do in your life, you aren't going to get that shirt to line up and look right. You're going to have a big, gaping fluff on your shirt. And so we need to get... This principle firmly ingrained not only into our minds and into our heart, but into our practice. On the final exam of your life, this is going to be the single question. This is going to be the criteria by which your life will be evaluated and judged. Did you glorify God? What in your life glorified God and everything else is vanity, is empty. This principle was stated in in Jesus' first sermon, not surprisingly, that he preached on earth in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn over to Matthew 5 and verses 13 through 16. Very familiar verses. where Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for what? Nothing. But to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Now what are You saying, Jesus? What's the point? Let Your light so shine. Key word there, so shine. To shine in this manner. Let Your works be displayed in this manner before men that they see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So we don't do good things in a manner in which it draws the attention and glory to us, but the manner in which we do things is they see it and say, glory to God in the heavens. The purpose of salt is to be salty. If it ceases to fulfill the purpose for its existence, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out. It's the same principle in light. And so my proposition to you this morning is that there is opportunity for every believer every day in every task, to glorify God. Everything that we do. So every from the moment we get out of bed to the moment we close our eyes, the consuming passion and thought of our life is to glorify God in this. And the reason I say it that way is because you can glorify God in cleaning your room. You can glorify God in doing the dishes or taking out the trash. Parents, you know this. If you walk into your child's room and it is immaculate, and they didn't even mention it, you didn't even tell them to do it, you just—you—it you, takes your breath away. That you walk in, and, and what do you? What's your response? Glory to God in the highest. I don't know what has happened, but revival is breaking out in this room. They have grasped the concept that I am not here to be the heavy in enforcing them to do what needs to be done. They've got the concept. And in like way, you can go into a child's room and say, "I don't." there's a lot I can say about this, but God is not glorified with what's going on in this room. Just as clear as anything in the world. You can go into a closet. I have gone into my children's room, looked in their closet, and said, Glory to God in the highest. Look at that closet. Look at those shoes organized and taking. Little boys. (laughs) Little boys don't naturally, by nature, put shoes in order. But when they do, glory to God that we got a made bed and an organized closet. Now, there's more to life than that, but there is that. And so there is opportunity for every believer, every day, in every task, to glorify God. You can glorify God in your marriage, in your parenting, in your finances, in your workplace, in your garage, in your vehicles. In everything that you do, the determining factor is, how do I glorify God in this? If we embrace this concept, it reveals that we should only have an audience of one. There's only one person that I am trying to please in everything that I do. And the reason that you can glorify God in it is because He is aware of every single thing that you do. And so you don't ever have to wonder, does anybody realize? Does anybody know? Does anybody aware of? What has He said? There is nothing that you will do for your Father in which, which He is not aware. He is aware of the sparrows. He's aware of the very hairs numbered on your head. And so there's not a single thing that you can do every day. You can glorify God every single day and fulfill the reason that you exist. The question that we should ask frequently, daily, moment by moment, that should be ingrained as we perform menial tasks as well as important matters, as well as when we go through times of suffering and conflict, fun times that those are, is to ask one basic question. How can I glorify God in this? In this. Knowing that He sees it, He sees not only what I do, He sees my attitude. He sees the words that come out of my mouth. He knows everything. How in this situation, not in somebody else's life, but providentially where God has placed you in this circle, within that little airspace that you consume, with this task, how do I glorify God in this? And that every aspect of our life is just consumed with that. And what joy to know that God is not incorrigible. He's not hard to please. He's not a, a Nazi. He's very gracious. And that you can go through your day, every single day, doing mindless things to the glory of God. But obviously, we don't always do that, do we? That's where the problem is, right? Sometimes I do a task and I just think, ah, cram it in there, slam the door. (laughs) There, done. But this is the question that we should be asking ourselves continuously, continuously, every every situation. I, I don't know what to do. Well, here's the north star. How can I glorify God in this? That's what I need to discern. And that eliminates a lot of the options. Let me give you two things this morning. What does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? You've probably heard Piper's statement, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When we are just so satisfied, as we sang this morning, about who our God is, what He has done, what else do I need? I have a relationship with the Creator and Sustainer of the universe. But that the motive of our heart is to magnify God. Psalm 34 and verse 3, I'm sure you're familiar with. O magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt His name together. Let's let everything we do exalt God's name. That when they see it, like I said with your child's closet or room, glory. praise be to God for this. Just glory to God for what just happened here. Because obviously, God is working in hearts and changing desires, and He is pleased. To magnify means to raise an estimation, to exalt. We, we read Psalm, what was it, One fourteen. Extol, right? Is that... Matthew 5.16, that they see Your good works and extol, magnify, exalt the name of God. That that is the the natural knee-jerk reaction when they see that glorify, glory to God. And I don't mean this in a cliché, catchphrase, bumper sticker. I, I mean it genuinely from the bottom of your soul as an act of worship that I just say glory to God in that. The definition of sin is to miss that mark and come short of it. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. And so that's the mark that we're aiming at. Is the glory, the approval, the blessing of God, he, we have an audience of one. The Catechism and another question says, how did God create man? God created man after his own image, and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. And so we are commissioned in the the uh, the mandate, the Dominion mandate, To spread the glory of God over all the earth. That's our calling. We're made in His image. And so He has His image bearers that spread out over all the earth, reflecting His glory. Well, sin is the failure to do that. What is it that steals and takes us off of this is when we magnify ourselves. It's about me. It's about my interests. And the Bible has a term for that. You know what it is? Vainglory. Empty. Worthless. It's vainglory. Vainglory, Webster says, is inordinate pride in esteem of one's own performance or achievement. That the glory would just go to me. Psalm 115, such a great text, but in verse 1, says it this way. Let me read it. Psalm 115 and verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. That it's not about us. That's not the purpose, that's not the goal, that's not the ambition or desire. And the thought is, is that, of the psalmist, is that at the glory, no! No, not unto us. Unto Thy name give glory. That we are quick to deflect the glory for the sake of His steadfast love, for His faithfulness, and for His, His name. And so because God is omniscient, involved with every detail of our lives, We can magnify him whether anyone else ever recognizes or sees it. We read it even in the the scripture reading of the the woman with the issue of blood. Did anybody else in the crowd know what just happened? Did anybody have any clue what she was dealing with? But what did Jesus say? Wait a minute, virtue has gone out of me. This woman glorified God because she realized that He was the only solution to her problem. You know the story of the widow's mite. Here a widow weaves through the crowd quietly. She drops two mites in the offering. God notices it and is glorified in it. And Jesus calls attention and says, now there it is. There's worship right there from two mites. See, here's the thing. When we realize that everything comes from God, really that's what Romans 11 is saying is, what are you going to give Him? What do you give that guy who owns everything, literally? Everything that exists comes from Him. Now what are you going to give me? Remember when he says they offered their sacrifices? And what, what was his response? I think it's Psalm 50. I own them all. The cattle on a thousand hills. They're all mine. What am I going to do with what you're offering to me? What am I going to do with that? Right? And the point of is what does God desire but truth in the inward part, a broken and contrite heart thou wilt not despise. I mean, imagine this if you had a child. Maybe you do. If you do, glory to God. Have a child that just gets up in the morning and says, Mom, Dad, what could I do for you today? Just tell me anything you would like me to do in my The chief desire of my heart for this day is just to please You and to serve You and do whatever You ask Me to do. Now, what kind of a monster would you have to be as they're going about that doing that and say, I'm not accepting that. That wasn't good enough. Do it again. You understand that God is not incorrigible and unable to be pleased. You can please Him using the ability and gifts that He gave you, not for yourself, but for Him. That everything that we do is for Him. One of the questions that we have in our home when someone is assigned a task and because we are a house full of sinners, we we don't always glorify God in everything we do. And so one of the questions is a parent that I like to ask, if I ask someone to take the trash out or clean the garage or the car, and, I, and if, we have a saying, don't expect what you don't inspect. If you just tell them to do it, guess what? It doesn't always happen, at least not in our home. And so when we, when we go out there, and let's say it's clean the car out, and, and they just didn't. Whatever they did, they, it didn't happen. And so I, I like to walk with them out there, open the door, and I have just one question I'd like to ask. Is this your best? And I try to do it not in a snarky tone, but it's really hard. Is this your best? So this was the best you could do, because that's all I'm asking for. I realize if I ask my oldest versus if I asked my youngest, that they're not going to perform at the same level, right? I'm smart enough to figure that out. But is this your best? And I can tell you, nothing brings my children more joy in life than when I do something and they say, Dad, is that your best? I mean, that just thrills their soul. I'm sure it's not in a healthy way. But that God just desires our best. Do the best you can do. With a clear conscience, it's not perfect. Sometimes you're going to try, work very hard, and it's going to flop. But you did your best. You were doing the best you could do. And God is pleased with that. And He's glorified in it. Secondly, that's the meaning of the glory of God. Is that the others see what is done, or our motive in doing it, is that God be exalted and praised and highly thought of, instead of us. Not us. Not our name. His name. But secondly, I want to look at some examples in Scripture of the model or the example of others who lived this out. The biblical support for this purpose, or you could call it a biblical theology of tracing this concept or scripture from the lives of other godly men. Look over in Philippians chapter 1, you're familiar with the book of Philippians that this is a prison epistle. this is at the end of the Apostle Paul's life and how he summarizes his life. In Philippians 1 in verse 20 he says, in prison, whether I'm released or not, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. What does that mean? I don't want any part of my life that I'm ashamed of that did not bring glory to God, but that with all boldness, so always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life, or by death. If I am released, my purpose and my motive in that is for the glory of God. That Christ is magnified in that. And if I die, my motive in that is that Christ is magnified in that. And so I don't really know, and he goes on to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I don't know. I don't know which one I want, there's sometimes we have to make decisions and we just say, Lord, I, like, what do you want me to do? I, don't, I could go that way, I could go that way, I don't care. Whichever way I go, I know this, I want to glorify you in it. And it just has a way of becoming evidence as God leads us. You remember the, the, Paul's work in Philippi you remember the book of Acts in chapter 16? That not only do our lives, but that others would see our good works and compelled to praise God. Do you remember Paul and Silas in the jail? Remember where they were at when that happened? They were in Philippi. And how did Paul and Silas respond to a good old 39 lash beating? What was their response at midnight as they were... Down in the inner prison, licking their wounds and, and trying to recover. What was the response? To just be singing and praising and glorifying God. Do you suppose that they had, anyone had ever seen anything like that before? And what was the response of the Philippian jailer when he saw that? Glory to God. What do I need to do to be saved? This is something I have never seen before in my life. Now you realize, in our day and time, most people, would you agree with me, are not going about their life thinking, how can I glorify God today? Right? What an opportunity we have to do things for the glory of God. Not to be seen of men, Paul wasn't doing that. They weren't singing out a window so somebody would hear them. That was just the natural response in their soul as Peter and John, after they were beaten, rejoiced, praised God. They were counted worthy to suffer for His name's sake, And other people saw it, gave glory to God, and said, what do I need to do to be saved? Whatever you have, I need it. I don't even know what it is. In Colossians, you turn over to the next book, chapter 1 and verse 15. This great Christological book, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the church, or head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, here it is, underline this, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, He might have the preeminence. In all things. That Christ... May be exalted in my body, Paul said, whether by life or by death, but in all things, that Christ is preeminent. That he's the one who's magnified. That's the model. How about John the Baptist? We looked at Paul. Turn over to John 3 and verse 30. Another scripture you're familiar with. John's ministry, you remember, the disciples are the, the religious leaders were always trying to create strife and envy between John and Jesus. They would say things to him like, you realize that He's baptized more disciples than you? They were trying to provoke John to envy. And you remember what John's response was? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the principle by which I evaluate. He must have the preeminence. If you think you're going to convict me or stir up envy or jealousy, you have the wrong person. Because the absolute abiding principle in my life is that it's all about Him. You can't threaten me with Him having more disciples. The The friend of the bridegroom rejoices at that. That just fills me with joy to know that He has more disciples and that He's being exalted. I, I just need to decrease. And that's why Jesus said of John the Baptist that of men born among women, there's not a greater than John the Baptist. Because He lived on the, on, the, on the precept that I must decrease. Now that would be a good bumper sticker, wouldn't it? I must decrease, and He must increase. I just need to get lower. I need less attention, less preeminence, less success, less given to me, not to me, but to Him, more given to Him. This is really the essence not only of Paul and John the Baptist, but this is the essence of prayer. You know Matthew 6, 1, where the disciples came and said, Jesus, you asked Him to teach Him to pray as John also taught His disciples to pray. How did He teach Him to pray? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Everything that I'm praying is for the glory of God. That God's name be magnified Exalted, extolled, preeminent, high. It's about Him. That that is the motivation, right? You know, in James 4, when he talked about why two, two reasons why you don't receive answers to your prayer, remember what they are? Number one, because you don't pray. You have not, because you ask not. And the second reason is because you pray not for the glory of God. But to consume it upon your own lusts, for your own selfish desires, and so he doesn't. And so how did Jesus teach them to pray? Here's the first. You want to know how to pray? Here's where it starts. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's everything that is going to come after in my request is all hanging on that principle that your name be exalted. Think about it this way. What if we took all of our prayers? What if you took all of the prayers that you have ever offered in your life? And you had a filter. And the filter just filtered out every prayer that wasn't for the glory of God. And the only prayers that make it through the filter are prayers that are for the glory of God. What are the likelihood that those prayers that make it through would be the answered ones? And the prayers that didn't make it through would be those coffee grounds that we just throw away. And so this is why, we, this, is why this is central to a Christian. I read to you from 1 Corinthians about issues of conscience. We need help with this today. How do I make decisions about all the different crazy things the world spins to get out worked up about. Well, what's our one question? How can I glorify God in this? How can I glorify God in this? How can I edify other people in this? Peter mentions it even in the context of suffering. What a terrible thing. Suffering is a terrible thing. I get a pain. I don't know if you're like me, but I was driving over here this morning. I had a just a pain. I thought, that's a new pain. I don't like that. I hope that doesn't stay. (laughs) Right? Hope that goes away really quickly. We We don't need any of that. But if it stays, my response needs to be glory to God for that. How do you want me to respond to this? I know how I'd like to respond. I'd like to complain like to have a bad attitude, I'd like to be grumpy, but no, I need to glorify God even in this. As the Apostle Paul, I'm sure in pain after a few stonings and in prison, writing letters to encourage people, not to tell them, I can just imagine if it was me in some prison in some third world country, my prayer letters back to the churches wouldn't be the book of Philippians. Yeah, I'd be talking about how mean the security guard is and how poor the food is and all that I'm suffering. Instead of 1 Peter 2, look in verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's the motive. Then over in chapter 4, Peter says it this way in verse 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Right? There was some shame. Paul mentioned this in Philippians 1. That if I showed up in prison, front page of the paper tomorrow, there would be a measure of shame attached to that. But not if it's because of the proclamation of the gospel. Not if it's for the glory of God. And so he says, that if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. That my suffering is for the glory of God turn over to the book of Daniel. One of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. I had a Sunday school teacher who used to call him Nebuchadnezzar. Didn't quite get the phonetics in school, maybe. But Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 is a great example because Nebuchadnezzar, it's hard for us to fathom the person that Nebuchadnezzar was as a dictator and as a ruler over the known world. But in Daniel chapter 4, you know the story where Daniel is taken captive and he's in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And and Daniel 6, Daniel was preferred above presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. They could see it. But in Daniel 4, the king has a dream Daniel interprets the dream about the tree getting cut down. And Daniel has the interpretation. And Daniel pleads with him in verse 27, Wherefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. So, He has an opportunity to speak to the ruler of the known world. And what is he? Just like Paul before Agrippa, before Festus, Felix. He says, break off your sins by righteousness. But then notice in verse 33. You know the story that Nebuchadnezzar is Wandering around, and, and he makes this statement. Is not this great Babylon that I have built? I mean, just, just take a look around. Look at what I have done. I have to catch myself sometimes. I finish a project, and I, I'm tickled pink. I have to remember, you know, glory of God. It's not about me. But wow, this is really cool. Nebuchadnezzar does this, and the Bible says in verse 33 the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from manity, eat grass as oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. And at the end of the days, this is Nebuchadnezzar telling the story after the fact. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, three and a half years later. And my understanding returned unto me, and listen, and I blessed the Most High. The first words out of his mouth were, praise be to God. And I praised and honored Him that liveth forever and ever. Whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And this is Nebuchadnezzar. He just does whatever He wants. And He says, You know what I have learned? And He doeth according to His will In the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say unto him, what are you doing? Nobody. At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. This is the mystery of it, is that they so feared Nebuchadnezzar that for three and a half years when he's wandering out in that field eating grass, nobody dared take his throne because they didn't want him they knew what he would do to them. But verse thirty seven Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, just he sends this throughout all his kingdom. I would like to praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. All whose works are truth and His ways judgment. And if you underline your Bible, you should underline this. And those that walk in pride, He is able to abase. And I am the living demonstration and testimony of that, Nebuchadnezzar said. And I want everybody in every kingdom to know that I praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven. This is the plan. This is the purpose. I won't take the time to go through it, but if you read the book of Ephesians, the theme of God's ultimate and eternal purpose, let me just read a few of them. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, why did He do that? To the praise of the glory of His grace. 11 and 12. Who worketh... According to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory. Fourteen. Under the praise of His glory. Eighteen. What is the riches of the glory of His inheritance? On and on through the book of Ephesians, that the entire purpose of all things is unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, amen. And then you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you are not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then at the end of all time in Revelation chapter 5, the familiar... And they sung a new song in verse 9 saying, Thou art worthy to take the book to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. And what were they saying? With a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and, to the, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. That's what it's all about. It is about him. I mentioned, let me close with this thought. I mentioned earlier that God is satisfied with your best but I want to clarify that statement. If you are outside of Christ, there is not a single thought, word, or deed that you have ever done that has is pleased, is pleased God. To attempt to please God and yourself is to say that Christ did not need to die And that I could please God on my own. In contrast, when we look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, every thought, word, and deed that Christ had was glorifying and pleasing to His Father. Every single one. This is why we... Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, having His perfect obedience. He said, my me is to do the will of Him that sent me, is to glorify my Father which is in heaven. Everything He did in His entire life glorified His Father perfectly. And so the good news of the Gospel is that His obedience can be counted to you by faith. Having perfect obedience, the Father said to the Son, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That can be said of you, because Christ's obedience being counted to you by faith, God is pleased with me perfectly. Outside of that, you're rejecting that and saying, I don't need Christ, I will please God on my own. And he's already said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God is commanding you to trust in the work of Christ alone, to account for your sin and for his righteousness to be counted to you. If you're outside of Christ, look to his perfect righteousness. Everything he did was perfect. Lastly I would ask this question Is the glory of God the conscious and dominant thought of your heart Is that the dominating principle by which your life is ordered is for the glory of God Doesn't matter how young you are doesn't matter how old you are doesn't matter what you accomplish, how smart you are, how good-looking you are, but is the conscious and dominant thought of your heart to glorify God in everything you do? And I would challenge you, as you examine your own hearts, is to say, well, what is one aspect of my life that isn't glorifying to God? If we were going to prioritize and put it at the top of the list and say, well, we need to do some reformation here. It's like when I clean the garage out. Where are we going to start? Well, what would be the the biggest bang for our buck here to get some momentum is to examine our lives and say, okay, what aspect of my life cannot be done to the glory of God that I need to repent of and get rid of and mortify and kill it and replace it with something that glorifies God my desire would be that you go from this place today identifying and saying you know what I think God wants me to get rid of this part of my life I don't know what those things are but I would encourage you To make that the dominant thought of your life is how can I glorify God in this? Use that as the scales that you put everything in. Glorify God? Nope. Discard pile. Glorify God? Yes. Save. And to do all to the glory of God. Let us pray. God, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. Who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. We thank you that you will make a covenant agreement with us in the gospel to be reconciled to you by the death of your son having His perfect God-glorifying obedience counted to us, and taking all of our sin and laying it upon Him. We thank You for our great God and King and Mediator. God, help us with this. We confess how desperately short we fall in this area each day, in thought, word, and deed. But God, help us to be a people that are dominated with a desire to glorify You. That we not lose our savor, that we not cover the light, but that others may see our works and glorify You. Help us. Help us, we pray. Thank You for the help of Your Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Well now as we seek to glorify God in all of our aspects of our lives and to recognize where we fall short, let's take our Trinity hymnals and turn to number 258 and confess our dependence on the Holy Spirit to apply the word to our lives. Number 258 in the Trinity.